Welcome to the latest FT Advisor In Focus podcast. Over the past 15 to 18 months or so, our post bags have been full of letters from people concerned about the new IR35 rules. Whether these were from freelancers who are concerned about how the rule might be assessed, or from businesses worried about how they're going to assess the tax status of every freelance contractor they hire, IR35 has posed problems for readers and their clients. But add to this the potential impact on medium to large-sized financial advisory firms who not only have to guide their contractor or corporate clients through the changes, but also may fall into the scope of IR35 themselves, it's very understandable that what might have seemed like a small change in tax legislation is actually having a huge impact on thousands of businesses and hundreds and thousands of people across the UK. So joining me, Simony Kuriaku, Senior Editor of FT Advisor, to talk about what the new rules mean for contractors, clients and for advice firms themselves, are three well-known specialists. Joining me is Nimesh Shah, Chief Executive of Blick Rothenberg, Susan Ball, Partner at RSM UK, and she's also Deputy President of the Chartered Institute of Taxation, and Justin Small, he's founder of the Future Strategy Club. Welcome all and thank you for joining In Focus. Can we just start with you, Susan, um, to talk about what the new rules might mean for contractors and for freelancers? Thank you. Yes. Well, I mean, obviously, for services they provide after the 6th of April, for those that are in the private sector, obviously not the public sector, but in the private sector, this, this will be a new change for them because for those services, um, if the company they're working for is medium to large, as you said earlier, then um, they will have to do an assessment uh, to assess the status of that contractor whilst they're working and their working relationship for the services after the 6th of April, and they could be found inside or outside of IR35. Obviously, if they're found to be inside of IR35, then that will mean that they will have deductions of tax and national insurance for those services after the 6th of April. They should also be receiving what's called a status determination statement to explain why they have been decided to be inside of the rules. They have the right to appeal. So if they get that and they're not happy with it, then obviously they can appeal to the organisation um, who then has to reassess effectively or re-look uh, re at the situation and confirm whether within 45 days they assume the decision that they've made is, is the same or actually if new information has come to light, which means that they would change that decision. So, Susan, it, it sounds from the, uh, from, from it, it sounds quite simple, but Justin, your members are very, very concerned about this, aren't you? Because you have over 300 um, talented sort of uh, consultants on your books and you must be getting lots of very concerned phone calls. Yeah, I'm, I think they're concerned because they don't, I mean, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding around it, but but generally the concern is they're going to they're going to be paying tax at source and that's obviously a concern because that probably cuts their, their income, their direct income by what, 30, 40%. Obviously those taxes, because before April they were self-determined, so they would have to determine whether they were inside, outside, and would then be paying those taxes. And if they're not, they could get caught up in in a couple of years by HMRC. But the, I think the real worry at the moment is not knowing. And and when they're putting their rates in, are those rates kind of inside or outside? Because we're now getting uh, freelancers coming with two rates, one for inside, one for outside. So yeah, it's it's kind of just a made 
what is actually a quite a difficult decision to go freelance. It's quite brave, and there's certain people that do it and love it, other people that have done it from, the, from necessity now. And it's kind of making that more complicated, which obviously, you know, with an entrepreneurial kind of drive from this government to really push kind of a Silicon Valley type attitude to starting businesses, um, this is kind of a bit of a, a kind of deflation of that, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And if I just stick with you for a second, do you think that there could be like this double or triple whammy? I mean, thanks to COVID, we've already seen sort of hundreds of thousands of freelancers unable to claim grants under the self-employment income support scheme. Um, I think according to IPSE, about 700,000 freelancers have decided to quit permanently and go into full, full-time employment. Um, do you know, is this new rule likely to hinder the entrepreneurial spirit of um, of the UK? I mean, if you're genuinely, there's a difference here. If you've been working for, let's say, in the financial services for three years, day to day, going into an office but charging a day rate and putting that through your company, you're not you're not self employed. You're just you're, you're you've got you know you're working within the rules. Now you're not because now now you are definitely termed as an employee. And that's what the rule catches. And I don't think many people think, well, that that's a problem. The problem is when you're self-employed or you're running for your company and you are working generally for many different companies or um, or trying to, that this now makes it almost like you're an employee without the benefits of employment. You're paying mm. full tax, but you don't get anything. I mean, I know that the rules, um, as, you, as you kind of become employed, you'll start to get holiday pay, but you're not part of the company. So, yeah, I think the challenge, and I think what everyone's worried about is at the moment, being coming you know if you lost your job in the pandemic one of the if you're in like our in our uh, industry consultants and creative you know it's quite it's quite often everyone will go into freelancing but this has made it scarier which could mean that you're on top of losing your job you're not able to you're kind of finding it hard to find a job as well yeah and there's no sort of uh, as you said no holiday pay no sick pay no pension no income support. And Nimesh, you're, you're you're nodding furiously there. Can I can I bring you in here? Is this something that your clients have been very concerned about? Yeah, they've known about this for a couple of years. The public sector rules came in in 1718. The private sector rules are meant to come in last year, but the government decided to delay it by a year, given the impact of the pandemic just hitting before before the start date. Uh, what's interesting from Justin's comments is that the employment rules haven't changed. Um, so the employment law rules haven't changed. So you don't get any of the benefits of being an employee, um, but you are taxed like an employee under these rules. And what I'm seeing anecdotally is that some of the large financial institutions, the banks, uh, some of the large law firms who use contractors, well, they're, off, they're applying a carte blanche approach here. They're just saying that, look, we are going to apply the IR35 rules, we don't want to get into trouble. Um, the rules, as they are currently drafted, is that they push the onus on the client and those banks and those law firms. And so it's contracting the opportunity um, for genuine self-employed people to uh, engage with those entities. Absolutely. Um, Justin, can I can I bring you back in here? I mean, I saw you nodding when uh, Nimesh was talking about some of the anecdotal worries that he's been uh, talking yeah, to. Yeah, I, I would say when you look at the criteria, and there's three key criteria to determine whether you're inside or outside R35, which is control, which is does the client determine what you do or do you the day-to-day? Personal service, which is a real tricky one, is can someone else do the work for you? And is it in your contract that you can just replace? Because you're acting like a company service. And this mutuality of obligation, which is 
So is the client obliged to give you work or you're obliged to accept it? When you look at those, most people that are working in a more than a medium term contract with as a as a freelancer through their company will be caught. So the challenge of that is that most people that are working like this might as well, if that's how they're going to work, take permanent jobs because they're not going to get out of it. And the one challenge there for us, you know, we work with a lot of creative people. We see ourselves as, you know, as freelancing is kind of the future of work. It's it, for certain people. And we want to build that, those infrastructure for people to literally do it from university all the way down to pensions and put those pensions because it does seem to be the future of where we're going for a lot of people anyway. Is that if you if you're an expert in a certain field, you can you can be doing services for a lot of different companies, but you cannot replace yourself because that's why you've been bought in. And so that's really difficult. And I think I guess that's been done on purpose because that's going to catch even, you know, if I want to bring in, let's say, an expert in on AI who is renowned for being expert or bring them in to do a project. They can't replace themselves, and therefore I have to pay their pay away. That's I think that's slightly a ridiculous rule that should be looked at. Mm, absolutely, uh, Susan. Can I can I bring you in here, please? I saw you were raising a hand there. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's just it's an interesting point, and I think there's a lot of debate going on at the moment about the rules still. Um, so we had at the beginning of this month the APPG issue a report on how contracting should work. Um, and effectively said to government, you need to sort this out. This, this, how you do determine status, which Justin was mentioning, is, is you know really important not only for the tax rules but also for employment law and what obligations go with that. And and it's a model, quite frankly. You know, we've got a situation where you know you go to court, and even in court, you get judges looking at the same facts determining differently. So how is the man on the street supposed to work out what somebody's status in and get it correct? You know, this was something that Matthew Taylor suggested in relation to employment law in 2017. They said that the government said they were going to do something about it. We haven't seen anything. So I think there's still this debate, um, you know, difficult one. Do we have a statutory test? Would that be better? Who knows? But but I think it's it's a question that really you know, needs to be resolved so people can work out properly when somebody should be, you know, on payroll, whatever, whether it's a deemed employee or as an employee, or whether they should be off. And I think everyone's struggling with this at the moment. And I'm not sure we're all getting it right, because it's a hard thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Nimesh, um, is it definitely a hard thing to do? I mean, what what sort of solutions? I mean, look, at I saw you raising your hand there and yeah. nodding curiously. No, I, I think Susan summed it up perfectly. It is a mess. Um, under these new R35 rules, it's the client that has to assess the position of the contractor. They provide this thing called a status determination statement, but they rely on, and I've already seen it very early with some of my clients, they're using HMRC's tool on their website, which, if I can be very honest and blunt, is quite inadequate. And it's popped out after a few questions as to what a very binary answer as to what the status of this person is. Um, there aren't any clear rules. Um, there's some woolly guidance on HMRC's website, but everyone is really confused about what the actual situation is. In addition, the, if, um, if the client is saying that we believe you are an employee, then the, the, uh, the personal service company, the contractor, has the opportunity to disagree with that, and there is a disagreement process. But HMRC have said, no, we're not getting involved in any of that. Okay, could you, could you explain a little bit more about that? So if the contractor disagrees 
Uh, they can submit a disagreement process to the client. Seems very unusual. Do you really want to upset your uh, the, the company that you're about to uh, contract with? But that is a process that you can go through. But then HMRC have said that they don't want to get involved in any disputes on the status issue between the contractor and the client. That's for them to determine. Now, if there is a real fallout there and they both just can't agree on what the correct position is, the client is going to impose payroll taxes. So the contractor is worse off, as Justin was saying. But then they could go through this then rigmarole of self-assessing a different position. Uh, so the contractor could then try and reclaim that tax and national insurance through the self-assessment system. But the alarm bells are going to ring at HMRC straight away to try and recover PAYE. It's very difficult to go and get that because they're going to say, well, a company has assessed you to be on a certain way. And now you're saying something different. It's going to tie you up in all sorts of red tape. So Nimesh, I'll, I'll stick with you for a second and then go to Susan. Um, so what we're hearing is it's not only the clients, uh, not only the contracting freelance that are very concerned about this, but also the businesses themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a big change for the private sector. Um, and I have to say that they probably not planned as well as they should have done. Um, it's human nature to leave these things at the last minute. Um but they're worried about their compliance obligations to HMRC. And so, as I said before, they're taking a very hard black and white rule to say, if we're not sure, we're just going to apply payroll taxes here. Um, and what's upsetting, and again, anecdotally, from what I'm seeing early on in the rules, we're only a few weeks in, is that they're saying that we're going to pass on the employer national insurance costs at 13.8% onto the contractor. So the contractor is already worse off by that amount. Mm. And Susan, can I bring you in here as well? And perhaps we can look at a sort of financial advice firms as well, because for many years we've been writing about how advice firms are outsourcing, you know, get some outsourced uh, power planners, get some outsourced advisors, uh, bring in your consultants, bring in your HR, but outs outsource them, you know, have freelance, have contractors. Um, now they're going to get caught up in this as well. It must be really, really tough for, for many medium to large sized uh, financial advisory firms too, right? Absolutely. And, and I think, as Nanesha said, you know, they've got to effectively implement the rules if they're medium and large. Um, they've therefore got to work out who they need to review. Um, there is a step in there which sometimes people sort of forget about, which is called conditions of liability. So they do need to assess the business and work out whether somebody would be caught first. So, you know, the ownership structure of it, the person you're being provided with, do they own a percentage of it, depending on which um, type of entity but then you have to go through that status check and then uh, you know as has been said quite often it's a risk management issue for the organization because the risk if they are on a borderline type case is that if they don't apply tax and national insurance when they should do that they could be held responsible for that um, and so you know the natural reaction might be for somebody's risk averse is to go well actually then I'll apply <laughs> because because then I haven't I'm not holding that risk myself so we have seen a mood, you know, to people perhaps on that cautious end going, I'm going to jump one way, which is to apply tax and national insurance. And then as been described, you've got the difficulty of how do you appeal that if you don't think that's the right decision? Um, and can you change somebody's mind? Um, I mean, despite what's been said, you know, we are seeing a lot of people use the HMRC tool. It is the only one they're standing by. Um, if you do go through that, there is a section at the end which is about more to do with the individual's business, how many clients they might have, whether they've done this type of thing before, which you might not know when you make a first assessment. So it may be 
you know, perfectly correct that what happens is on the appeal, the individual provides more information which might change the decision. So I think that's, you know, that's helpful, but it, it doesn't help all circumstances. And obviously, again, you've got to get the organisation to reassess, properly reassess and properly reissue. And they might not be inclined once they've said inside to change their mind. Sure. But that might also mean that they don't um, take on some very valuable uh, freelance and um, maybe some excellent creative and um, intelligent and entrepreneurial contractors just don't get access to these businesses anymore. Or maybe they don't want them. Uh, Justin, can I can I bring you in here? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a really interesting from from our side, from a consultancy and agency. There's a lot of obviously consultancy agencies use a lot of talent on a on a kind of project by project basis. That's how it works. We are a members organisation, so we are an agency, uh, but of freelancers of of kind of kind of C level down to kind of like senior designers that all those levels. So we combine consultant creative, and we. We've been looking at this obviously because it, and we're luckily at the moment. But you know, I hope we have this problem. We're not, we're not kind of uh, more than ten million rev and and fifty employees. So we're kind of okay because on the small business, it's fine. But we still, our contracts with our clients have to be proven to be genuine co- contracted out services. So if we're providing, we do provide resource in a recruitment model, and that would naturally automate always be uh, inside r35 or sorry it'd be a non it would be a, a resource model and therefore um the the client our client would determine the, the the do the determination and if they said that it was inside r35 then we would need as the fee payer would need to collect um tax and then get into kind of you know get them on our payroll which is quite complicated for a small company to do so i think the key is there's a lot of collaboration here. I think if you're if you're if you're a kind of um, a freelancer, whatever level, and and the, uh, a client wants you to work with them, it's obvious that if you're just dropping into one of their current projects, their current project teams, that happens a lot of the time. That is, there's no way of getting around with it. That is inside R35. There's no there's no kind of you know you're going into a team. You're not you're not acting as a business, and so that's it. And, and I said before. The determination of what a, a service is is very tight, and it's going to catch most people that are doing most that kind of contracting. But if you're de- delivering a project and you're taking the risk and you're and you're you're kind of controlling the resource on it, um, then you are out. Then that is a, a service contract, and 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 therefore you should be okay. But I think the the differentiation between those two is the real the real kind of challenge is that most people you know have just been working contracting for years jumping into projects and now suddenly you know unfortunately their 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 salaries that they were getting as i said before though that a lot of these people may not have been determining determining whether they're inside and outside of r35 they probably were inside but have not been paying the right taxes and could get really seriously in trouble i mean that's the problem here so do you think we might see uh, contracting, particularly at the higher level, C-level, um, get more expensive? Uh, freelancers put their rates up? Yeah, that's all. That's already well, happened, that's for sure. Demand I mean, sick I, pay, I'm, demand, I'm, demand yeah. benefits like the Uber workers, perhaps? Well, they will. They do get them, don't they? If they're put onto payroll, then mm. suddenly a lot of kind of um, kind of holiday pay kicks in. So we would use, uh, personally, we, a lot of companies are using umbrella companies. When you're, when you're inside, you use an umbrella company that does all the tax. And therefore, that makes it easier for the agency and the client, but it obviously affects the the uh, the freelancer who are putting their rates up. 
but I, I'm kind of I, I was slightly disgusted that any company would pass on their their employer and I, I think that's just terrible and someone you know we, I think there's there's a, there is a, a deliberate element here of people need to pay their tax and if they're if they're just in a rolling contract then that's fair enough unfortunately we'll have to pay our tax um, if you are kind of uh, kind of going into projects and adding you know services then then that's the kind of that's where you shouldn't and you because you're taking risk aren't you setting yeah, up your own business and an entrepreneur you should uh, you're taking risk therefore you get the uh, benefits of being able to pay yourself by dividends because you are on your own and if now in this government has decided that that kind of risk they want everyone to be an employee that goes against I think some of the other stated aims of government, which is to drive entrepreneurism, mm -hmm. to drive freedom of, you know, of services across. I mean, it's a very dynamic economy. And there is a possibility of this R35 cuts down that dynamism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that sort of cuts down at the smaller end of the market. I don't think the FTSE 100 companies will bother too much. You know, it, it doesn't shave too much off of their bottom line, but certainly the SMEs are going to, to find it. Um, and they're the sort of the backbone of Britain, aren't they, Nimish? I can... Uh, what are the sort of pitfalls for SMEs and those working in them? It'll be interesting to see what line HMRC take on this. Uh, agree with what Justin was saying that um, there will be a natural contraction in the number of freelancers because the demand may not be there from some of the bigger organisations. But I am just wanting to push the envelope on well, how severe will HMRC be on this this uh, this whole agenda because. As we've heard already, the big institutions are going to apply this whatever. So they're going to get the tax and national insurance HMRC. HMRC have also said that they're not going to issue penalties for the first 12 months to those, well, to um, um, the clients that are in the R35 rules. So there's almost like a grace period there where they acknowledge that well, we're finding our feet as to where these rules are. I'm still sceptical as to whether HMRC will pursue aggressively those contractor companies that um, are still within the R35 rules and how much they will pursue um, the status question. Uh, I don't see too much of it in my time in practice. I've been in practice for 20 years. Uh, generally, they go after the client and say that you really should have been putting this person on payroll. That's the easier win for them. And really, that's what they've done with these new rules. So um, when you talk about pitfalls, um, I'm not sure that there will be too many for the contractor company. I think it's going to be much more of a burden for the client. Mm. Um, but they're going to be applying these rules irrespective anyway from what we're hearing. Absolutely. Susan, can I bring you in here? Um, I see you've got a, a hand raised. How, how is this going to – how can we help um, protect the lifeblood of uh, British industry? <laughs> That's a big question. It's a big question <laughs> for a Monday morning. <laughs> I th well, specifically in relation to these rules, I think um, uh, just taking up on a point that was mentioned earlier, a couple actually, uh, in relation to what IR35 are going to do, I'm not sure this is completely answering your question, but I think it's, you know, they've been policing these rules you know, IR35 has been around since 2000. Mm. Now, the reason we ended up with the change is, let's be honest, they weren't very good at policing the rules. I think if I remember rightly, it was 2010-11, they'd only done 23 reviews that were mm. publicised in relation to IR35. And that's when the debate started to happen about why the rules should be changed and the owners should be put on somebody else because clearly HMRC weren't good at the compliance job. That said, I think, you know, um, Anesha's right. If, you know, if you've got a larger company 
medium sized large company operating the rules, it's a lot easier to, to check them than it is to pick off individuals. Um, but having said that, as Justin's mentioned, if you're an individual and you're suddenly inside, questions could be raised about why you might have reported your income previously outside. So we've got a difficult situation. Um, you know, it, HMRC aren't going to be able to police them completely because they couldn't before and they would need many more resources than they've got. So I think there's that to mention. I think there's also the point um, Justin mentioned in relation to national insurance. And I think it's worth remembering this. We have to be very careful who is applying a charge for national insurance for the secondary national insurance. There is actually legislation which says you can't deduct it from an individual. So it has to be dealt with in a particular way. So I know that there's um, some contractors out there who've seen this deducted in a way that isn't appropriate. But there are others because of the way the rates are dealt with, which, again, Justin mentioned, you might have an inside rate and an outside rate where actually some of these things are taken into account. And it depends on where you are in the contractual chain. So I think there's a number of challenges there. Um, I'm I'm sitting on the fence at the moment as to how much impact when it all settles down, this will have because we had you know, we thought it was going to be a big impact when we had the public sector rules. Actually, I think what's happened is after the first year when it settled down, people have sort of got into the flow. Um, you know, we're seeing many more contractors in that space. I think people are just deciding if they're inside and they have deductions. Well, maybe that's fine. Maybe it's not. <laughs> and they may want to renegotiate whether they're on the payroll or not. But that goes back to, again, the length of time, what goes with it and everything else. So um, I'm still thinking, you know, we might see in another year or so's time that this settles down and, and people will still be hiring contractors. I, I don't think that'll stop. Sure, absolutely. I'm going to actually ask a wrap-up question So, because um, we are sadly running out of time um, for this. But um, Susan, if I could just start with, with you, um, what do you think would be the most helpful amendment or the most helpful manner in which IR35 is implemented that could just make it work better for clients? That that is difficult. There's a bit of me that says, you know, we probably shouldn't have had the rules, to be honest with you. And and particularly right now, you know, I think it's despite the fact it got put off for a year for COVID, I think there's a lot of businesses greatly impacted. The reason maybe they're not as up to speed as as we would have liked to have seen, bearing in mind we knew this was coming, is because they've had so many other things to worry about. I think it's really bad timing. Um, if I was trying to do just one thing though, the point I mentioned about having some form of better clarity about what's inside and outside. I know not everyone's going to like it, but actually I think if you're going to have this kind of rule to make it easier and, and have clarity is much better. Mm. Absolutely. Nimesh, you've been talking about clarity, particularly more clarity from HMRC. Yeah, and I, I think we need, it's building on what Susan was saying, that we need a statutory status test. We've had this in other parts of the tax code. This is something that has been maybe in the too difficult part for the government, but that would unlock um, certainly some of the confusion around who is in and out. I also think this is the start of maybe a bigger drive to align the self-employed and the employed. Uh, the Chancellor came out last year when he was out announcing the self-employment income support scheme that the self-employed would be made to pay for for all this support. So I'm not I'm not sure um, the longevity of these IR35 rules because I suspect that there will be a drive from government and Treasury to uh, to bring those uh, two regimes, those taxing regimes, close together in the future. Mm. 
yes, definitely, definitely more simplicity is needed. Justin, can I um, end with you? So I mentioned before that there's three criteria that determine whether you're in or out, and the, 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 there's control, personal service, and mutuality of obligation. And the one that I have a little bit of a problem is the personal service. That, I, as I said before, if you're an expert in a field and you're caught, cool, you want to go in and do a month's project with someone to to add your expertise. According to the criteria, you have to be able to. Uh, replace yourself so sell as a company not as a service which seems to cut through swaths of expertise and specialisms across many different industries which seems slightly ridiculous I mean that's one thing I would the other ones I think that you're in control of your work uh, that you're taking risks they all seem fair to me you know um, obviously it doesn't feel fair if you're suddenly paying full tax when you maybe weren't paying very much before I understand that but I think the, what what's been lost I think a lot of companies that haven't read it haven't realized this this small business exemption you know if you're below 10 million and 50 and 50 employees you are outside of this so the the freelancers that work for you direct self-determined as they were before um and that's that's kind of that a lot of consultancies boutique consultancies agencies sit in that so if you're a freelancer and you work, you want to work on projects like with us, then they're the places to work with because they are outside. Um, as long as they're not doing recruitment, if they're doing proper project work, like most agencies and consultancies do, and they're under 10 million, which a hell of a lot are across the country, if you work for them, then you're outside and you self-determine as you were. And so that's maybe one thing to do is that these small businesses will get a, a bit of a uplift because all this talent will drain out of going direct to clients and go through these, go through these agencies who own the uh, the service contract and it's genuinely kind of outsourced and therefore you're not affected at that level so that might be something people want to think about instead of going directly to to large clients who will determine you to be at, uh, inside i35 because that's what they're doing go via a agency or or consultancy and work and then you'll get the work that you want the fulfilling work and you'll also you know be able to keep your tax money and obviously pay what you need to pay at the end of the year mm. Well, hopefully we don't see a, a talent drain, but we just see the talent perhaps shift elsewhere in the country because Britain definitely needs that entrepreneurial freelance spirit. Um, I'm so sorry, this is all we've got time for, but we could definitely talk about IR35 um, until at least the end of the day, if not forever. But I just want to thank Justin, Nimesh and Susan again for taking the time to join us. And obviously, thank you all for listening. Until next time, take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. 
Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.